Welcome to our continuing 2019 educational webinar series. I'm Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for FIRST Healthcare Compliance. At FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Rachel V. Rose, JD, MBA, Principal with Rachel V. Rose, Attorney at Law, PLLC, in Houston, Texas, with us today. Ms. Rose has a unique background, having worked in many different facets of healthcare, securities, and inter international law, and business throughout her career. Her practice focuses on a variety of cybersecurity and healthcare and securities law issues related to industry compliance and transactional work, as well as representing plaintiffs in Dodd-Frank False Claims Act whistleblower claims, which remain under seal. Ms. Rose holds an MBA with minors in healthcare and entrepreneurship from Vanderbilt University and a law degree from Stetson University of Law, where she graduated with various honors, including the National Scribes Award and the William F. Blues uh, Pro Bono Service Award. Ms. Rose is licensed in Texas. Currently, she is the chair of the Federal Bar Association's Government Relations Committee and co-editor of the American Health Lawyers Association's Enterprise Risk Management Handbook for the Healthcare Entities Second Edition, as well as a co-author of the books the ABCs of ACOs and what are international business considerations. She has been named consecutively to the Texas Bar College, the National Women Trial Lawyer Association's Top 25 and Houstononia Magazine Top Lawyers for Healthcare. Ms. Rose is an affiliated member with the Baylor College of Medicine's Center of Medical Ethics and Health Policy, where she teaches bioethics. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. A download of the handout is available with a button on the side panel of your screen. So Rachel, a warm welcome. Catherine, thank you. It's always a pleasure for me to do work with FIRST Healthcare Compliance and I'm delighted to be invited back to discuss today's topic, HIPAA and health apps. And as is the norm, we need to advance the slide first and then give the disclosure that the information presented is not meant to constitute legal advice, consult your attorney for advice on a specific situation. Moving on to our overview of the presentation, we're going to begin with some general risks that have been identified well healthcare applications and some other areas of transmission such as text messaging 
and some of the FDA's guidance in terms of different types of medical devices. From there, we'll delve into HIPAA sales and marketing provisions, which are very important, recent HHS guidance on healthcare apps, and then some technical, administrative, and physical safeguard requirements that need to be met, and approaching compliance from the board and executive team on down through the organization and risk mitigation. So beginning with the headlines and apps that we've seen lately. This one I came across and it relates to the app store Google Play has already discovered apps that are abusing their access to certain sensors. Google recently booted 20 apps from its Android phones and app store. Those apps could record with the microphone monitor a phone's location, take photos, and then extract the data. And they could do all of this without a user's knowledge. So even HIPAA aside, which is the focus of the presentation, for those of you who are under the umbrella of GDPR, and that is the EU's most recent law, which became effective in May 2018, and that's the general data protection regulation that is very, very intensive and is very similar to California's privacy law and also the recent law which passed in Nevada. So there are a couple of takeaways here. First, you need to make sure that you have read the terms and conditions as well as knowing exactly what you're consenting to. Now, oftentimes websites or apps or any other type of technological application does have its privacy statement, which it should be located at the bottom of the web page. Or in today's world, with GDPR in particular, oftentimes it's done as a pop-up. Another way that this Google Play is very relevant is more in line with Amazon's Alexa. And there was recently a court case which was filed where parents and children were suing because their children were in fact recorded without their knowledge or their parents' consent. So they in fact did not give consent to be recorded. I recently read an article in BC Advantage related to Alexa in the healthcare setting. And while there are some advantages for anything that is remote or where you don't have to engage your hands, especially as a healthcare practitioner, when oftentimes, especially in a critical care setting, the issue of touching the instrument and rendering care becomes very complicated. It can be useful, but one also has to be mindful of how the device works and what the potential legal consequences are because there have been other types of cases where Alexa's recordings were in fact used as evidence in a variety of court proceedings. So that's something that you really need to be conscious of if you're using that type of application. This is what was said in Forbes magazine about the various apps. The chief worry isn't about 
receive getting their hands on lost or stolen devices, but the ease with which companies can gain access to the personal information stored on your phone. And obviously, when we look at our smartphones, apps are a key component of that. So that is very significant along those lines. And later on in the article, it said, without your knowledge, the developers of your app, your wireless provider, and your handset manufacturer can sell this information to other firms, like advertisers, insurers, or even places where you're applying for a job. Well, overall, this is problematic because it depends upon the type of information that they are, in fact, collecting and selling. And that is where, when we get into our next section, it talks about HIPAA sales and marketing. So what type of information can be data mined? And for those of you who keep uh, watch on the market, Tableau was just purchased by Salesforce, and that's a data mining company. So at what point can your data be mined? Is it just for internal use, or can it, in fact, be sold? And with GDPR and some of the other laws that I mentioned, it's actually probably less likely that the same options will be available for the companies as well as for their business-type associates. So moving on to HIPAA sales and marketing, what's permissible versus what is impermissible? Well, generally speaking, if we go to 45 CFR 164.508A3, this is where sales and marketing of PHI is addressed. And basically the privacy rule gives individuals important controls over whether and how their protected health information, which is also known as PHI, is used and disclosed for marketing purposes. So with limited exceptions, the rule requires an individual's written authorization before a use or disclosure of his or her protected health information can be made for marketing. Just in general, if we step back and go into some of the general exceptions as to when consent is not required or authorization before disclosure is not required, oftentimes if the individual is unable to communicate, that would be one instance. Another instance would be what's known as the law enforcement exception. There are still protocols that need to be put in place. So a law enforcement agency, state, federal, local, cannot just come in and carte blanche ask for PHI. There are certain parts of our legal proceedings that need to be adhered to, such as a warrant or other types of subpoena or discovery devices. If you're in a civil case, Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 26 is the primary rule which governs discovery as well as FRCP 30. So those are definitely two good places to start when trying to navigate what would be required. Another area that comes up is can a whistleblower take protected health information and utilize it? Is it impermissible? And as long as the individual who is the whistleblower did not take it for any other purpose and they gave it to an attorney and or the government, in order to disclose healthcare fraud, then in fact that is 
a type of disclosure that does not require an individual's written authorization as well. However, for sales and marketing, this is slightly different and it is in fact quite nuanced. So the privacy rule in general defines marketing as making a communication about a product or service that encourages recipients of the communication to purchase or use the product or service. Well, that makes sense, it's very fundamental. Generally, if the communication is marketing, then the communication can only occur if the covered entity first obtains an individual's authorization. Typically, this is done if we think about when we go into a physician's office, for example, or if we go to one of the main drugstore chains or a supermarket and go to one of their minute-type clinics. There's that HIPAA authorization that all of us sign off on. This definition of marketing has certain exceptions. Examples of marketing communications that require authorization are the following. A communication from a hospital informing former patients about a cardiac facility that is not part of the hospital that can provide a baseline EKG for $39 when the communication is not for the purpose of providing treatment advice. So as long as you're a patient at XYZ Hospital and they're opening this new service, then that is considered okay. A communication from a health insurer promoting a home and casualty insurance product offered by the same company. And that's no different than if we think about our own car insurance. How many of us get brochures in the mail that say, oh, you have our car insurance. What about our home insurance or renter's insurance or life insurance, things of that nature. So that is considered okay as well. But what else is marketing? There's some other portions that have no exceptions. An arrangement between a covered entity and any other entity. And any other entity can be a business associate in HIPAA terms. And it can be, for example, a pharmaceutical company, a medical device company, a marketing company, any type of company like that, whereby the covered entity discloses protected health information to the other entity in exchange for direct or indirect remuneration. I want to pause there because that clause in exchange for direct or indirect remuneration is the legal area of orange jumpsuit territory, potentially. And I have a case example that I'll share with you once we get through this. But this is something that you really need to be conscious of if you're engaged in this type of conduct. For other entities or its affiliate to make a communication about its own product or service that encourages recipients of the communication to purchase or use that product or service. This part of the definition has absolutely no exceptions to it. The individual must authorize these marketing communications before they can occur. This is vital, and I mentioned the notice of privacy practices and the HIPAA, HIPAA authorization that we're all familiar with. Simply put, a covered entity may not sell protected information to a business associate or any other third party for that party's own purposes. 
Moreover, covered entities may not sell lists of patients or enrollees to third parties without obtaining authorization from each person on the list. So what that means is that there's a duty on the covered entity to put in a HIPAA authorization in bold. It can't be in fine print like a contract of adhesion, but they need to put something in there that says, do you consent to having your PHI marketed or sold to X third party, whatever it is. And the patient needs to be given the option to opt out of that. The other part of it is that marketing can be a health plan selling a list of its members to a company that sells blood glucose monitors, for example, or a Another one is a drug manufacturer re receives a list of patients from a healthcare provider and provides remuneration. Again, that can be indirect or direct, in cash or in kind. So that's very important. And a drug manufacturer then uses that list to send discount coupons for a new type of drug directly to the patient. That's very, very specific, and it's something that the law says patients need to know what's being done with their protected health information and whether or not they want it sold so that another party can benefit from that. If you look at case law that's going around right now throughout the country, there is something being espoused and there have been cases that have settled regarding white coat marketing and that's when various healthcare providers who work directly for a third-party company such as a drug manufacturer in fact engage in the marketing component of that equation so they don't work for the covered healthcare provider they actually work for the business associate drug manufacturer or medical device company for example so that is definitely an area for corporations providers to put on their uh, red flag list and make sure that they are in fact compliant with that type of practice. In 2013, the omnibus rule came out and this is what really set the hypocrisy into motion is the way I looked at it because that's when people said, oh my gosh, there are additional penalties and this is the final rule. These are not the interim rules which were promulgated in 2009 and 2010 after the High Tech Act passed. Now we're looking at Federal Register 78 beginning on page 5566 and that date is January 25th of 2013. Here the definition of sale is fundamental. It equals disclosure of PHI for remuneration and as I stated on the other slide remuneration can in fact be direct or indirect in cash or in kind. A covered entity's notice of privacy practices must state that any sale of PHI requires an authorization. A sale of PHI occurs when there is direct or indirect remuneration, again, including in-kind remuneration. In contrast, the definition of remuneration for marketing purposes 
does not include non-financial or in-kind remuneration. So sale is very different in terms of the type of remuneration that's required. So non-financial, instead of just getting paid cash or a check, you would be, you being the provider, for example, would be receiving services from a company or you would be receiving sports tickets or trips or meals or things of that nature. And that would also constitute in-kind remuneration. The definition of a sale of PHI includes a transfer of ownership of the protected health information, as well as disclosures of PHI based on an access, license, or lease agreement. And just as an FYI, if you are a covered entity who is selling PHI, Hopefully, you have a business associate agreement in place to do that as well. Not that that negates the sale of PHI, but at least the transfer of that PHI is being done in a compliant manner. There are a number of exclusions to the definition of a sale of PHI, including for purposes of, one, public health. So that would be disclosures that are required under various laws, especially as they may relate to sexually transmitted diseases or other types of uh, communicative diseases such as measles, uh, which is a hot topic right now in the media. Research that is covered by HIPAA, such as clinical research, if the payment is a reasonable cost-based fee to cover the cost to prepare and transmit the PHI, Treatment and payment, that's an obvious one. A sale and merger transaction involving the covered entity or the business associate. Still, if you are involved in that type of transaction, it means that the individuals or entities involved need to have the physical, technical, and administrative safeguards in place. Next. We need to look into the providing an access or an accounting to an individual. So that is if a patient wants an accounting of their own medical record, you can give that to them for a de minimis amount, such as per copy. If they want it, if they, the patient or their family member who is authorized to act on their behalf would like a copy of the medical record, in an electronic format, then the provider should give it to them in that format as well, as required by law. And the last one is as otherwise permitted under HIPAA, where only a reasonable cost-based fee is paid. So the authorization for a sale must specifically date state that the sale will result in remuneration. Again, that's something that has to be expressed and the patient needs to sign off on that. So before we delve into HHS and their facts on the Health Information Act, I wanted to go through a case which settled in 2015, in late 2015, and there was another part of the case which was settled in 2016. But basically, this was a False Claims Act case, which was brought by the United States Department of Justice and a key TAM relator. 
And basically, the drug company, Warner Chilcott, agreed to plead guilty to felony health care fraud schemes and pay $125 million to resolve criminal liability and false claims act allegations. Well, this type of case is fairly common when you start getting into anti-kickback and Stark law violations. But what's interesting about this particular case is that the Warner Chilcott subsidiary of pharmaceutical manufacturer Warner Chilcott PLC not only agreed to plead guilty to felony charges of healthcare fraud, but the reason for the healthcare fraud was fairly interesting. Basically, their high level managers and regional managers were engaged in a scheme from 2011 to 2013 where the drug company's employees knowingly and willfully submitted false, inaccurate, or misleading prior authorization requests or other coverage requests to federal health care programs for the osteoporosis medications Altiva and Actinol. The false, inaccurate, and misleading information was provided to certain insurance companies in order to overcome formulary restrictions that favored the less expensive osteoporosis drugs. For instance, Warner Chilcott was aware that many insurers only paid for the osteoporosis drug if a physician submitted an individualized request explaining why the patient could not be treated with less expensive medications approved to treat the same conditions. Well, what's interesting here is that without the patient's knowledge or consent, it was the sales representatives who were filling out numerous prior authorizations using, quote, canned medical justifications, which often were inconsistent with patients' medical conditions. In some instances, according to the information, the sales representative submitted the prior authorizations directly to insurance companies holding them out to be physicians. So what's interesting here is how did the sales representative get a hold of the medical records in the first place without gaining access to those by the physicians okay? So basically, another part of the plea was that they previously pled guilty to various charges, including conspiracy to commit healthcare fraud and violations of HIPAA. The HIPAA violations are fascinating because it relates not only to the prior authorization scheme that was conducted, but also a physician from Longmeadow, Massachusetts was charged with, among other things, allegedly accepting free meals and speaker fees in exchange for prescribing its osteoporosis drug and giving those sales reps access to the patient records in order to have them fill out the authorizations accurately or inaccurately without the patient's knowledge and consent. So that was, needless to say, a very significant fine of $125 million, and it did, in fact, carry criminal penalties. Another area that is very important to look at 
in terms of healthcare apps are mobile medical applications. And the Food and Drug Administration has issued guidance on this. Basically, you need to know, A, what are medical apps? Well, medical apps basically are software programs that run on smartphones and other mobile communication devices. They can be accessories that attach to a smartphone or other communication devices or a combination of accessories and software. But what's important to know here is that one might consider a Fitbit to fall into that category, which it very may well, given what the device tracks nowadays. However, there are medical devices that are regulated and mobile medical apps that are not regulated. So basically the FDA produced a guidance document that provides examples of how the FDA might regulate certain, what they refer to as moderate risk or class two mobile medical apps versus high risk or class three mobile medical apps. And the guidance provides examples of mobile apps that are not medical devices, mobile apps that the FDA intends to exercise enforcement discretion on, and mobile apps that the FDA will, in fact, regulate and enforce um, penalties on. So basically, the FDA is taking this tailored risk approach that focuses on the small subset of mobile apps that meet the regulatory definition of device. So how do you know whether or not a mobile app, which arguably is different than a health app, meets these regulations? Well, you wanna look first at the Food and Drug Cosmetic Act and then the Medical Device Act of 1976. The Medical Device Act of 1976 does provide a definition of medical device and lists different types of devices. Basically, these regulated items are intended to be used as an accessory to a regulated medical device, such as a pacemaker, for example, or transform a mobile platform into a medical device. And as we know, mobile apps span a range of health functions, and while many mobile apps carry minimal risk, those that pose a greater risk to patients will require FDA review. So again, you want to look into if you're going to get approval from the FDA for a particular type of app. Basically, a mobile medical application, manufacturers and developers of mobile applications can search the FDA's database of existing classifications by type of mobile medical device application. A category that relates to this is diagnostic and approved cleared mobile medical applications will also be listed in the FDA's 510K and PMA pre-market approval databases on the FDA's registration and listing database. FDA's mobile medical app policy does not require mobile medical app developers to seek agency re-evaluation for minor 
iterative product changes. So what would be a minor iterative product changes? For example, a patch that updates these security features would not require a developer to reseek evaluation. So that's something to bear in mind too. Basically, the FDA includes within its mobile medical apps that it's going to look at in terms of enforcement as it helps the patient or the user self-manage their disease or condition without providing specific treatment suggestions, provides patients with a simple tool to organize and track their health information, provides easy access to information related to health conditions or treatments, helps patients document, show, or communicate potential medical conditions to healthcare providers, automates simple tasks for healthcare providers, or enables patients or providers to interact with the personal health records or electronic health systems. That last one's very important because you may also, if you're receiving meaningful use dollars, need to make sure that the integration complies with the requirements for that. So moving on now to HHS OCR's new facts on health information. As you can see on the screen, I've listed the website URL there, so you can go and access it directly. But basically, there were five Q&A that were posed, and this came out in April. Very important and actually complements what the FDA set forth. But this again, does not only relate to those items that the FDA said they would enforce their discretion on in terms of regulating. This relates to anything in terms of the creation, receipt, transmission, or maintenance of EPHI, EPHI being electronic protected health information. So question one is, does a HIPAA-covered entity that fulfills an individual's request to transmit electronic protected health information to an application or other software, collectively called an app, bear liability? And in typical lawyer fashion, the answer is it depends. And it depends on the relationship between the covered entity and the app. Well, what does that mean? If the patient comes in and says, I want my information transferred to this app, just as if they came in and said, I want my information put on this unencrypted CD-ROM or unencrypted USB drive, it's prudent for the provider to say that uh, we appreciate that you want it on here. You do realize that this is unencrypted and we do not have the option to encrypt the device that you're asking us to put your information on. If it is lost, then someone who picks this up could in fact have complete access to all of your information. What I would recommend doing as the covered entity or the business associate who keeps the records on behalf of the covered entity is basically put that disclaimer in writing and have the patient or their representative initial next to that that they understand that that is the case. Because under that instance, that is the patient asking the entity to put it onto a given device. It is not, and this is that it depends, it is not the covered entity saying, we will give this to you on this particular device. 
or you need to connect with this app in order to access your health records or keep track of your exercise regime and blood sugar levels, for example. So once health information is received from a covered entity at the individual's direction by an app that is neither a covered entity nor a business associate under HIPAA, the information is no longer subject to the protections of HIPAA. And that's the example that I just gave. If the app is chosen by the individual to receive the individual's requested EPHI and was not provided by or on behalf of the covered entity, who thus then did not create, receive, maintain, or transmit EPHI on its behalf, the covered entity would not be liable under the HIPAA rules for any subsequent use or disclosure of the requested EPHI received by the app. For example, a covered entity would have no HIPAA responsibilities or liability if such an app that the individual designated to receive their EPHI later experiences a breach. Again, it's always prudent to have a disclaimer to that effect that a patient signs off on just so you know that you've given them the deal. On the flip side, when is a covered entity liable? So basically, like I just said, if the app was developed for or provided by or on behalf of the covered entity and thus creates, receives, maintains, or transmits on behalf of the covered entity, then the covered entity could be liable under the HIPAA rules for a subsequent impermissible disclosure because of the business associate relationship between the covered entity and the app developer. For example, if the individual selects an app that the covered healthcare provider uses to provide services to an individual involving EPHI, the healthcare provider may be subject to liability. And that, again, relates to what I just said previously. Question two, what liability does a covered entity face if it fulfills an individual's request to send their EPHI using an unsecure method? So under the individual right of access, an individual may request that a covered entity send their EPHI to a third-party app in an unsecure manner or through an unsecure channel. Again, that disclosure, just as a cover one's backside, is very prudent to have whenever someone is requesting that their medical records be transferred onto something that is a patient's own device. For instance, an individual may request that their unencrypted EPHI be transmitted to an app as a matter of convenience. So then the covered entity would not be responsible for that unauthorized access. But as I highlight in the last paragraph, Again, you want to make sure that you've told the patient of the potential risks involved the first time that individual makes the request. And that's just mitigating your legal risk because as, as everyone knows, everyone's going to get named in a lawsuit. Question three, where an individual directs a covered entity to send EPHI to a designated app, does a covered entity's electronic health record system developer bear HIPAA liability after completing the transmission of EPHI? Well, again, it, it depends, and it depends on the relationship, if any, between the covered entity, the EHR system developer, and the app chosen by the individual. So if the app is part of the provider's EHR and that 
information is being sent directly to that app from the EHR, then the onus is on both the covered entity and the business associate to make sure that they are carrying out the covered functions of technical, administrative, and physical safeguards. A business associate relationship exists, which means that you need to have that business associate agreement in place. And if the EHR system developer does not own the app, or if it owns the app but does not provide the app to, through, or on behalf of the covered entity, this is where, again, it could get a little bit murky because the EHR system developer would not be liable under the HIPAA rules for any subsequent use or disclosure of the requested EPHI received by the app. So you really want to make sure that you are ensuring that you as the covered entity appreciate where that liability can arise and make sure that the business associate agreements are curtailed to address those specific concerns. If the EHR system developer owns the app or has a business associate relationship with the app developer and provides the app to, through, or on behalf of the covered entity, the EHR system developer could potentially face HIPAA liability. And that's because under the High Tech Act, that liability expressly extended and definitely under that omnibus rule, which I mentioned earlier, there that link of trust, which includes the covered entities, business associates, and subcontractor, the flow of liability goes throughout. For example, an EHR system developer contracts with the app developer to create the app on behalf of a covered entity, and the individual later identifies that app to receive EPHI, then the EHR system developer could be subject to HIPAA liability if the app impermissibly uses or discloses that EPHI that is received. So moving on to question four, can a covered entity refuse to disclose EPHI to an app chosen by an individual because of concerns about how the app will use or disclose the EPHI it receives? The answer here is no, according to HHS. And that's because the privacy rule generally prohibits a covered entity from refusing to disclose EPHI to a third-party app designated by that individual patient if the EPHI is readily producible in the form and format used by the app. So a covered entity cannot take a paternalistic approach, but going back and reiterating what I've tried to emphasize, having a disclosure and having the patient sign off that this is considered a, an unsecure transport and that it is at the patient's request and that the covered entity does not have liability when this circumstance arises, that's what you need to say. The HIPAA rules do not impose any restrictions on how an individual or the individual's designee may use health information that has been disclosed pursuant to the individual's right of access. Again, going back to what I began with, GDPR, the California Privacy Act, Nevada's Privacy Act, which just passed, those could have different implications. But again, that is not the issue for the covered entity. That's something that the patient would have to address 
directly with the app itself. So that covers question four. And question five, does HIPAA require a covered entity or its EHR system developer to enter into a business associate agreement with an app designated by the individual in order to transmit that EPHI? Again, our favorite lawyer answer, it depends, and it's premised upon the relationship between the app developer and the covered entity and or its ER systems developer. A business associate is a person or entity who creates, receives, maintains, or transmits protected health, EPHI, or PHI on behalf of or for the benefit of the covered entity to carry out those functions that a covered entity does. An app facilitation of access to the individual's EPHI at the individual's request alone does not create a business associate relationship. So again, it is fact and situation specific. HIPAA does not require a covered entity or its business associate to enter into a business associate agreement with an app developer that does not create anything on behalf or for the benefit of the covered entity. So again, hypothetically speaking, if a patient wants their EPHI transferred to a Fitbit app, I don't know if that can be done. I'm just making it up because Fitbit's common and the hospital does that, the hospital does not need to go into that business associate relationship with Fitbit at that point because the app under this scenario was not developed to create, receive, maintain, or transmit EPHI on behalf of that provider. So again, that is the question that I would begin with, which should in turn move us into compliance and risk mitigation. So enterprise risk management is a great tool regardless of the size of the organization. And in the past, organizations worked more in silos where there was this department or that department, but rarely was there this overarching committee where people from the different departments came together and said, okay, how does our operation flow, for example, when a patient comes into our organization until they exit our organization, what steps do they go through? How do our departments interact with each other? How does everything get to the endpoint for billing purposes? And along those same lines, as various lawsuits have emerged and executives looked at their board members' applications, how many people on the board actually know about cybersecurity or HIPAA if you're in a healthcare arena? In today's world, you really need a subject matter expert, especially if one is either a healthcare startup company or a major company such as a full biotech or med device or a major publicly traded healthcare entity. So the keyword is fiduciary duty, and that is a heightened duty that typically the board has to an organization as well as its executives. Lawyers have that duty, physicians have that duty as well. And basically, in order to mitigate risk, executives and board members should all undergo annual training on HIPAA, the High Tech Act, and cybersecurity. They should be provided a copy of the internal policies and procedures 
They need to understand what's covered in their insurance policies. The technical, administrative, and physical safeguards, every single person on the board and on the executive team should review the risk analysis as well as the SOC report, and then understand what HIPAA and the High Tech Act are. At least one subject matter expert should be on the board to review everything and answer questions and ask questions of the management team, as well as any lower level employees that are integral into those types of roles. So when we look at risk mitigation for an organization, there are a couple of key items that every entity should look at. The first one is adequate insurance. And what is adequate insurance? Well, it depends on a company's reserves. It depends on their risk tolerance. And a common definition of risk is probability times severity. It would also need to equate to the area of the country that you live in, for example. What are the state laws? Have you had past security incidents? Have you not? Have you been compliant with HIPAA since 96? And then subsequently, the Privacy Rule, Security Rule, and High Tech Act? Or is this just something new? And depending on the longevity of the company, it could be something new, for example, if it's a startup company. But you want to make sure that you can cover the cost of a breach because it is expensive from potentially a fine perspective, but definitely from a legal perspective and a correction perspective. Next, moving on to business associate agreements. You want to make sure that those are adequate and that the language is more mutual and that you've done adequate due diligence on who you are doing business with. Annual risk analyses, that is the number one item to begin with. So when I ask people to do a quick due diligence on a company, I tell them to ask five questions. Do you undergo an annual risk analysis? Do you undergo annual training? Do you have business associate agreements in place? Do you have adequate policies and procedures? And do you encrypt data at rest and in transit? And as you can see, those also relate to areas of risk mitigation. So why did I put those up there? Because if anyone has taken the time to read the various fines that have been assessed by the Office for Civil Rights in terms of HIPAA violations, they pretty much boil down to those five items, the business associate agreements, risk analyses, annual training, policies and procedures, and encryption of data at rest and in transit. So equally as important, you want to do the same due diligence on apps to understand both privacy and security concerns. Ask whether or not an app collects data and sells it. And you also want to make sure that the app itself is encrypted. So as we conclude this presentation, before we begin moving into our questions, first, privacy and the collection of an individual's data is becoming more of a focus, especially in light, again, of GDPR, of the California Privacy Act, and of Nevada's Privacy Act. We want to understand the relationship between the parties and the potential liabilities. That is key in terms of the health app 
scenario. You want to make sure that the privacy notices and HIPAA authorizations are up to date and give the patient the option to opt out of his or her PHI or sensitive personally identifiable information being utilized for marketing or sales purposes. And in addition to implementing the suggested risk mitigation items, I would also add that if you are a covered entity giving copies of EPHI or asking EPHI to be transmitted in an unsecure manner that you have a three to four sentence paragraph in bold that the patient understands that this is the case and that it's the patient's request and it's not to any application that the provider has any type of affiliation with. So with that, I wanna thank you for your time and attention, as well as thanking, again, First Healthcare Compliance. And with that, I will open the floor to any questions. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. That was a really informative and wonderful uh, webinar, so thank you so much. We have a few questions uh, concerning the presentation. So um, the first one was, um, how has HIPAA evolved to address mobile technology? HIPAA has evolved to address mobile technology really in many ways, the same way it's evolved to address technology. And we see that a lot through that requirement of encryption, both at rest and in transit. So whether at rest it is a workstation, as if we were at our office, our laptops, our iPads, our smartphones, or an app itself, that encryption requirement is becoming more and more focused on, both in terms of the Federal Trade Commission as well as the OCR, HHS as well. Okay, thank you. So uh, we have another one here. Um, what steps can companies take to ensure compliance? That's, That's kind of a large question, question, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it's a broad question, but right. it's one that we can think of as an inverted triangle where it's very broad at the top and then it becomes more narrow. And the two main ways to start at the top of that inverted triangle are one, with that risk analysis, which is required every year. And secondly, by implementing an enterprise risk management type program within an organization. So if everyone across the organization has a say in one way or another, what should happen is that once that risk analysis is received, those leaders on that committee should go through that and say, okay, what are our strengths? Where are our weaknesses? Where are our potential threats that are going to exploit our vulnerabilities? And a critical question that relates to all of that are, what are the potential avenues of ingress of EPHI or PHI into the organization? And what are the routes of egress? Where are we shipping it out to? And by focusing on those three main items from there, an organization can drill down into some of those more specific risk mitigation items that I mentioned before. Okay, all right, thank you. Okay, the next one, um, 
if uh, it says, are there any new NIST publications that address this? Um, you'll have to um, answer us what this might might mean there. <laughs> well, since we're doing HIPAA and healthcare apps, I figure that we're probably in that ballpark. Right. If, Perfect. Okay, uh, great. Great, great, great. <laughs> if I'm if I'm not uh, yeah, off they... the mark there, so to speak. Okay. And a couple of items come to mind. The first one is the 800-53. And 800-53 revision four has been in place since about 2013. And the revision five comments were just due. So that's one that you really wanna hone in on. And it's because that addresses just broad privacy and security. So that's something that's very important. Another NIST publication, which is great to look at, and although it's a couple of years older, it's still very good. It is 800-124. So that's another good one to look at there in terms of making sure that you're implementing NIST. NIST is crucial if your organization contracts with, for example, the federal government, because NIST, which stands for the National Institute of Standards and Technology, actually is required compliance in order to do business with the government. Okay, thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, did you have any other uh, words of advice or anything that you'd like to leave us with? The only two items that I would like to hone in on are first, first healthcare compliance has a plethora of resources for individuals. And I often write on these topics as well, which are often posted on the first healthcare compliance website, as well as other professionals. And I've been fortunate to collaborate with many of the other professionals who speak for first healthcare compliance. So there are great publications, both online and in book form, that the audience may be interested in. Yeah, that's a good point um, because we, and you can, uh, um, attendees, you can look for um, these publications, not only on our website, but um, uh, if you may or may not be aware, we have, we put out a lot of um, social media, so you can look on our LinkedIn page, um, but we all, we also put it out on on every part of our um, uh, social media. We put it out on our um, you know Facebook and even on Instagram and, and everywhere. But we put out um, the publications everywhere, um, so you can you can look uh, on all those different different places. Uh, and then uh, Rachel and I are going to be uh, we have a, a radio show that we're going to be um, putting out as well. And, uh, and a question and answer blog as well. So um, be uh, sure to be on the lookout for that and any other um, type of um, papers and blogs and um, conferences. So I wanted to thank you again so much, Rachel, for, for joining us today. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you very much, Catherine. And I look forward to our radio talk. I do too, I do too. So attendees, um, please use the contact information that was on the screen previously. Um, you can also download um, the, uh, you know, the handout and you can have that anytime that you wish to look at that. 
Um, please remember your PACOM and your PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. You can register for any future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.